I want you to think about a couple of scenarios with your life, uh, or from your life with me this morning. And the, the two scenarios are very similar. I want you to think about a couple of moments from your past where you felt pressure, maybe a tremendous amount of pressure. And the pressure you felt was really pressuring you uh, to take the easy path instead of taking the wise or the best, the best path. And I want you to think about a moment in your life, if you're willing, where you gave in to the pressure. And I want you to think about a moment from your life where you resisted the pressure, right? I want you to think about those two moments. If you could think about those two moments and set them side by side, even though there's a lot of similarities, I think you'll see, aren't they different? Don't they feel different? And those moments in our life where we just kind of gave in to the pressure. I think a lot of us would say, in that moment, what it felt like, I felt like I was trapped. I felt stuck. And in moments where we resisted the pressure, we stood up to it, I think a lot of us would say, those are moments where I felt, I felt freedom. Man, it felt so good. And if we look over the backstory of our lives and we evaluate the, the different moments of our lives, probably a lot of us would say this, those moments in our lives where we felt most free were moments where we did not let our circumstances dictate to us the kind of person we were going to be. And I bet those people that we admire in life, the people that we look up to the most, the people who we esteem as being the most free people, they are, they are people who they define themselves. with Their definition of themselves, it transcends whatever circumstances or pressure they're in. And, and they're like us. They feel it like we do. They're not cold and unfeeling. But somehow, some way, they can be in all kinds of different scenarios and situations in life but they retain their sense of self and their integrity. And I bet that's what we want for ourselves. We want to be like that. If you're a parent and you're trying to, you're trying to launch uh, kids into life, you want them to be like, you want them to have resilience. If you've ever mentored or invested in somebody, you want them to, to have that. It's really a lot of what we're going to be talking about today as we Turn to this passage. I'd love for you to grab a Bible if you want to use your phone. Do that. Either way is fine. But find 1 Timothy chapter 2. It's in the second half of the Bible, the New Testament. It's the 15th book you're going to find in the New Testament. This letter, it's not a book. It was a letter written by an old seasoned leader named Paul, the Apostle Paul, and written to a much younger leader named Timothy. And Timothy was a leader of leaders. He was the leader over all the leaders and the network of house churches in and around the city of Ephesus. And Paul wrote this to Timothy. He wanted Timothy to experience freedom and thriving and resilience. He wanted it for everybody in those churches to experience freedom and thriving and resilience. But the challenge was all the people in the church in Ephesus, they were experiencing all kinds of pressure. Pressure externally and internally, pushing them into something lesser than what Jesus had called them to. And maybe some of us can relate to that. What, maybe some of us know exactly what it's like to feel pressure to be a smaller, lesser version than our real selves. As you're thinking about that and as you're finding 1 Timothy 2, I want to put up what's our theme verse for this series. It comes from chapter 4. Paul wrote to Timothy, he said, what's your life and your doctrine closely? Preserve in them because if you do, you'll save both yourself and your hearers. And what we're reading from Paul in this letter to Timothy is all about the truth that we know and the life that we live being fully integrated together. 
And we're trying to remember that with our series thesis. We'll repeat it probably every week of the series. It's we teach what we know, but reproduce who we are. We teach what we know, but we reproduce who we are. And resilience and really freedom comes together when the truth that we know is also the truth that we conform to, that the, the truth that we teach is also the truth that we align our lives around. And when that clicks in and that comes together and doesn't unravel, even when we feel pressure, we feel we experience resilience and, and freedom and really a life of thriving. We understand who we are. The challenge was that this church at Ephesus, they were struggling with that. They were at a kind of tipping point. They were vulnerable to unraveling. And the reason was is that there was external pressure to instead of aligning with the gospel, align with cultural values. And there was also internal pressure at the same time to instead of aligning with the truth of the gospel, to align around false teaching. And these pressures, they were conspiring in such a way that the result was the church was fractured, it was unraveling, it was divided. People were fighting each other in the church. And some people were experiencing that their faith was shipwrecked. And that is the background, that's the context in which the Apostle Paul writes these words. And so we're gonna read all of chapter 2 together. I'm not going to preach through all of it today, but we're going to read all of it right now. Chapter 2, verse 1, he says, I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in godliness and holiness. This is good. It pleases God, our Savior, who wants all people to be saved, to come to a knowledge of the truth, for there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. This now has been witnessed to at the proper time. For this purpose, I was appointed a herald and an apostle. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. And a true and faithful teacher of the Gentiles. Therefore, I want all men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger, Without disputing, I also want women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. If you are not familiar with 1 Timothy, buckle up. Um, this is where the chapter gets a little confusing for some, maybe controversial for some. Verse 11, a woman should learn in quietness and full submission. All right, this is three for three. No one said amen whenever I read that in the other services. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. It's probably not too hard to see why the second half of chapter 2, especially verses 11 through 15, are a source of some confusion and some controversy for quite a few people. And that's okay. That's allowed. Um, I'm not going to preach on that today. I'm not teaching on that today. That's next weekend. And I promise you, if you come next weekend, we're going to address every single word of it. We're going to hit it head on, and we're not going to flinch. We're not going to back off. 
of any of it. And so this is what I'm asking of you. Will you be here at one of our weekend services next weekend? And if you have a friend, if you have a friend who's like, see, churches have gone soft and churches aren't teaching this anymore, I want you to invite and bring that friend with you. If you have a friend who is convinced that an honest reading, a serious reading of the Bible leads to misogyny and the oppression of women, I want you to invite and bring that friend with you. If you've got a friend who's like, I have no idea what this means, this feels weird, I want you to invite and bring that friend with you, right? And if you want, you may not know this, but at our Saturday night services, almost every week, not every week, but almost every week, at the end of the service, I host a live Q&A and I answer any question that anybody wants to ask. So if you want to come to service next Saturday night and ask your questions, that's totally cool. But we're not talking about that today. Today we're focusing on verses 1 through 10. And I got to tell you, I'm so amazed and I'm so grateful for God's kindness and his wisdom. Knowing into this church there's controversy and there might even be more controversy and confusion coming, that God inspired Paul to begin with a pathway to freedom and resilience and really how to experience peace. This is what he says. I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. If you're a note-taker, would you write this down? This is what we do. Prayer is our first response, not a last resort. Prayer is our first response, not a last resort. And this call to prayer by the Apostle Paul, this is, I'm convinced this is what it does. It chips away. It chips away at our tribalism. It chips away at our bent toward pride. And this call to prayer, what it does is it begins to cultivate in us a disposition of humility and submission. Does it say, listen, I want prayers to be made for some people. What does it say? It says all. What about the people you're mad at? Them too? You're gonna pray for those people that are mad at you? Pray for those people you're fighting? Yeah. And what's the big so what? What's the point of all of this? This is the theme. It's that we may live peaceful, quiet lives and godliness and holiness. Peace and quiet, that's a theme throughout chapter two, really throughout this book. And quiet doesn't mean volume, it doesn't mean shh. It's about your disposition. Wherever there is conflict in a church, and this church had conflict, and you know what, our church is gonna have conflict from time to time. Every church will. Wherever there's conflict, this is what you're gonna find every time. Unmet expectations and unfulfilled desires. Every conflict is about unmet expectation and unfulfilled desires. And what this call to prayer does is it gets our focus off of ourselves and what we want. It gets our focus off of our group. And it begins to reorient our thinking and our affections to what is in the best interest of all others even people who we may feel conflict with. And I don't know about you, but this is the kind of person I want to be. I hope to become this kind of person. I want to grow into this kind of Christian. I want us to be this kind of church, and I bet you do too. That prayer, no matter what we're facing, even in conflict, prayer is our first response and never our last resort. And one of the things he says, he says, pray for who? 
kings, all those in authority, and I want to draw our attention to this word. What's this word? Some of you guys are like, I don't know, this feels like a trick. <laughs> Thanksgiving. Gratitude. We're supposed to pray for people and authority over us, positions of leadership over us with gratitude. Well, what about the people in positions of leadership and authority who are using their power in ways that I can't agree with or endorse? We pray with gratitude for them too. What about, what about government leaders? What about politicians who I voted against? Who I campaigned against? Who I posted about on social media? We pray with gratitude for them too. Did you know that when this was written, it would be 250 years before it was safe and legal to be a follower of Jesus? That the government leaders, the kings and those in authority enacted persecution against believers. And Paul says, let's pray with gratitude for them. It requires seeing the gospel, seeing all people, even those people, is made in the image of God. And if Jesus could give his life for them, I can give some gratitude. And if I align my, if I slow down and I align my heart with Jesus, there are things that they might do that I will never be grateful for, but I can pray with a spirit of gratitude for them. This is a radical call. This is radical. A radical call to humility and submission. A couple of weeks ago, um, our group was, uh, missions team we were on, we're, we were in Ghana. And while we were in Ghana, we were given an audience with the Yana, the monarch over the Dagbon kingdom. It was a really great moment, and it was weird, but I was, I was honored in that moment. This was the king there, and he gave me this gift. And I don't know what you think, but I think I make that look good. Uh, <laughs> some people were hoping I was going to wear that today. Didn't. Um, but this is just a super cool moment, really kind, really honoring. I didn't deserve a lick of it. It wasn't about me, really. I was just kind of the next man up, and I was just kind of the representative. And really, this was about the many years that pastors and other Christians have been investing there. This is really about men like Pastor Otis, who for 13 years has been investing in the people in his kingdom. It's like, I don't know if you remember Moose, our, our partner in Ghana, who, 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 the church planner there, and it's for decades he has been living out the gospel, modeling honor and respect and godly submission to authority. Because of the way he's been living out the gospel there, this king loves pastors and Christians, and he tried to get. He was trying. He was hoping that we would stay there for a year. My wife wasn't cool with that, but he tried. He just loves pastors and Christians. Now, what you may not know is this king is a committed Muslim, and he loves he loves it when pastors and church groups show up to plant Christian churches in his kingdom. And it's simply because of the way that he's seen the gospel lived out in humility by Christians there. And I don't mean to imply that there's some sort of algorithm or some sort of formula that you could plug in that if we do the right Christian things in the right way at the right time, that voila, it works out like this every time. We know that's not true. I do know that if we don't live out the gospel, this won't happen. I'll tell you what I know. This is all I know. The way of Jesus is good. We live in a world that is addicted to power. 
It's addicted to power and control. And that is never going to be as powerful as the way of Jesus, as walking in humility and submission. Now, I want to keep it real with you because I like it when you guys are honest with me. I want to be honest with you. There's a group of people I have a hard time being humble with and submissive with and praying for. There's really two groups of people. It's the people I'm mad at and the politicians I vote against. And you guys are probably better Christians than me, and that's okay. But I, it's just hard for me to be humble and submissive with the people I'm mad at and, and the people that I vote against. And as, I, as I've been kind of gearing up for this message series and, I'm, and, and, and studying for this for months leading up to it, I got, let me just tell you about my own sin. And I felt like God had said something to me, and it's not like a mythical, mystical thing, and it's not like I heard God's voice or anything, but it's just as though the Spirit of God said to me, Rick, you know how hard leadership is, and you are not praying for leaders like you should. So I want to grow in that. I'm trying to grow in that. I want our church to take its just next steps in that. I want your small group, I want our small groups for prayer to be at the center. Not something that's tacked on at the beginning or the end, but it's really the thing at the center that we pray with and we pray for, that we're committed to, to prayer. And I know that sometimes it's hard. Like praying for people who you feel like are against you can be hard. Praying for politicians who you don't understand, I think it could be hard. How do you do that? And so I want to use this guy as an example, Clement of Rome. He was, he was a pastor who was a bishop in the church in Rome in the first century. His entire life, it was illegal and it was not safe to be a Christian. This man had friends who probably died because of government-sponsored persecution. But he modeled a prayer for those in power. And he prayed it, and he taught Christians to pray it. And if we pray it too, we are linking arms with Christians around the globe and across time. And this was his prayer. Grant them, Lord, health, peace, harmony, and stability, so that they may give no offense in administering the government that you've given them. Isn't that a beautiful prayer? So I want to ask you something, and this might sound pie in the sky, and I might sound Looney Tunes, just hang with me. Could we imagine, could we imagine what it would be like if city leaders, if the mayor, people in city council, people in elected positions in our, in our city, in our state, in our country, if when they thought of Christians, their first thought was, oh my goodness, those are just humble people. They make me feel like they are grateful for the role that I'm playing, and I know they want the best interest for me and for all others. And you're going to say, Rick, that's crazy. We can't make that happen. I don't know. You're probably right. We can't. But I know what I can. I know what I can do. I know what I can control, and that's what I contribute. And I know what you can control, and that's what you contribute. What if we just said, this is, we're, this is what we're going to do. This is what we're going to contribute, and we're going to start here. Paul said, this is good. This is good, and, and it pleases God, our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind. The man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. He's just talking about the cross. And this has now been witnessed to at the proper time. And what I want us to, what I want us to really focus on, what I want us to see, is that the Apostle Paul connects our humility and our submission with the mission of God to save people. And God is all in on saving all people. 
He wants all people to hear and know the message of the gospel. He wants all people to to see it and, and to trust the good news of what Jesus has done. He wants all people to find new life and freedom and forgiveness and acceptance in Christ. And in a way that I don't know how to comprehend, our humility and our submission is woven in to how God wants to accomplish his mission same people. And in a church where Timothy is facing serious, hardcore leadership issues, the Apostle Paul doesn't give him a manual of leadership techniques and tactics. He just gives him the gospel. And what we saw in chapter one, he's doing again here in chapter two, and he's modeling something that we just refer to as gospel fluency, which is this. Number one, just identify what is the content of the gospel. Then what, is, what are the implications of the gospel? And then now we're going to apply the motivation of the gospel. And the Apostle Paul, he just starts off with this. Remember that Jesus, that God has made a way for people to be saved. And that, that Jesus gave his life as a ransom. And the most stunning display of humility and submission that the world will ever see, Jesus gave his body on the cross to pay the price of sin and provide salvation. That God has made a way for us to be saved. And we know it's not sentimentality because of the resurrection. It is true and we can be confident in it. That's the content of the gospel. Let's jump down to motivation. God wants all people to be saved. His heart beats for all people to be saved. And we're aligned with that. Then our heart will beat for all people to be saved. Is there anything that we would ever elevate as more important than that? So we got the content of the gospel. We got the motivation of the gospel. So what... What are the implications? Like how should this impact your life and my life? Well, the Apostle Paul, he answers that. He says this. He says, therefore, based on that, I want men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. So men, this is for us. Men, this is an implication of the gospel. But because of what Jesus did, because of his humility and because of his happy submission to the plan to save people, because of what he did on the cross, we should follow him. And we should be men of humility and submission. And we should be peaceful men of prayer. So would you write this down? Weak churches have self-reliant men. Strong churches have submitted men. Weak churches have self-reliant men. Strong churches have submitted men. Some time ago, I I read something by the late Dallas Willard. He said, we give our best, we don't trust our best. We give our best, we don't trust our best. And if you feel like, man, that just seems like it's the same thing, I hear you. But the difference between those two things is the difference between peace and chaos. Men. Do you know why we sometimes leverage our anger? Men, do you know why sometimes we leverage our our physical presence, our strength? And some of us are like, I don't do that. I know, because we're too subtle. We we won't do that. We, We leverage tactics and techniques and strategies and maneuvers and all that kind of stuff to try to leverage whatever advantage we think we have to take advantage in a situation. Do you know why we do that, men? It's because we trust our best. Because we trust ourselves. 
instead of trusting in Jesus. And here's the rub. Here's something, men, we got to wrestle this down. Sometimes the things we want, sometimes your perspective, sometimes the thing you're advocating for, it really is good. It's wise. It would be the best thing. But men, if we use whatever advantage we can assert, if we use power, if we use control to try and get our way, we are mixing something ugly with the gospel. And it makes a church weak every time. So men, are you willing? Am I willing? Are we willing to not get our way? Are we willing to lose if it means not violating love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control? Men, are we so enamored with the way of Jesus? Are we so, are we so enamored with Jesus that we would rather not have our way than to stop following his way? What I'm talking about, this is rare. It's just rare. 21 years ago, my wife and I um, were English Bible study teachers in a Korean Presbyterian church in New Orleans. Majority of the adults primarily spoke Korean. Majority of the teenagers primarily spoke English, so they needed English-speaking Bible study leaders. And so we were there, and we loved it. It was a beautiful church. It was an awesome church. It was a great time to be there. But one of the things we discovered was, after we got there, is that this church was experiencing real division. There was a fight taking place. On one side, there was the pastor of the church, and, and there were the people who took his side. And on the other side, there was the, the head of the elder board, and, and there were folks who, who took his side, and people were fighting. And sometimes it was, got physical, like there was real shoving matches, which is very confusing when you don't speak the language. The pastor's son was in our Bible study. The chairman of the elder's daughter was in our Bible study, and they weren't fighting. All the teenagers, they were brokenhearted over what was happening with their parents. And so they just said, can we just pray for them? And so we began praying. We didn't know what to do, so we would just pray for them. And the conflict wasn't getting any better. And one night there was going to be a mediator and there's going to be a church-wide meeting and the mediator was going to kind of help arbitrate the dispute. And those are kind of situations where it often feels like nobody wins, everybody loses. And we didn't know what to do, so we are just praying. And that night... The chairman of the elder board asked if he could go first. And in a way that is so unlike Korean culture, he, he stood up and he wept and he publicly repented and he asked the pastor for forgiveness. And the pastor wept and asked him for forgiveness and they embraced and that church was healed. What do you think happened to the faith of those teenagers? <laughs> Through the roof. But here's my question. Was that church stronger or was it weaker because those men chose humility and mutual submission? Stronger. That's the gospel implication for men. What about ladies? Paul says, I also want women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. Now, I can totally understand why someone might say, this feels out of balance. It feels like, God, like, like Paul is saying to the men, I want you to do the important spiritual stuff, and to the ladies, just sit there and look pretty, but not too pretty. Is this about women's bodies and not attracting too much attention? 
It'll be very difficult for us to understand what's going on if we don't understand the culture, especially Artemis worship in Ephesus. Artemis was believed to be the daughter of Zeus and the twin sister of Apollos, but she was the firstborn, so she had the position of honor. And she was highly and deeply revered by men and women across the city of Ephesus and that region. She was described as God, as Savior, and as Lord. And it wasn't a sexual religion at all. There was no temple prostitution or anything like that. As a matter of fact, in their belief system, Artemis practiced lifelong singleness and celibacy, and that was celebrated. But she was seen as the savior, the protector of women whenever they um, were experiencing childbirth, going through, going through childbirth, right? And worship of Artemis, there was a whole economic industry around it, and it brought lots of wealth. And women were at the center of Artemis worship. And so the women in power and influence and dominance had lots of wealth and prestige. And what was very normal in that culture, certainly in the city of Ephesus, is the way that you demonstrated your dominance and your position of influence was how you presented yourself with your dress, with your expensive jewelry, and with your elaborate hairstyles. And, and elaborate hairstyles, the way is it represented that is because it required tremendous wealth that you had servants and you could sit around for hours and let them do your hair like that. It was a power move. So would you write this down? Modesty is not a command against flaunting sexuality. It's a command against flaunting wealth and status. And I use the word command. That's probably too strong. It's really instruction, not about sexuality, but about not flaunting wealth and status. And I'm not trying to imply that the Apostle Paul would be cool with flaunting sexuality. I don't think he would. It's just not, that's not what this is about. I believe it or not, the instruction given to women, it's, this, it's just the flip side of the same coin of the instruction given to men. Men are not to leverage their anger and their power and whatever advantage they have. Women aren't to do the same thing either. Both are to walk in humility and submission. This is not about yoga pants, right? It's about embracing humility and submission and refusing to use whatever advantages we may have to take advantage over others. And in a culture that is addicted to power, and I think every culture is, in a culture that's addicted to power, the way of peace will always feel disruptive. Did you write this down? Sometimes peace requires disrupting the status quo. Across the Roman Empire and in the city of Ephesus, stability and getting your way came through violence and dominance. The historian Tom Holland says that the Roman government had a monopoly on violence. And he said the term Pax Romana, which means Roman peace, should really be understood Roman pacification. Might makes right. Through power and violence, you assert your way and you dominate. And that was a celebrated virtue in this culture. As a matter of fact, it was a key component of what it meant to be a man. Dominate and get your way. Strong men enjoyed and flaunted advantages over weaker men. Rich people Enjoyed and flaunted advantages over poor people. The free enjoyed and flaunted advantages over slaves. And if you were on the wrong end of things, too bad. 
And imagine how weird it must have been in a culture like that to find a group of people who rejected that entire way of being and were creating a brand new culture of peace through humility and mutual submission. Sandra Glahn is a scholar and an author, maybe the most important expert on the cult of Artemis and how it impacted the church in the first century. Um, I want you to hear what she has to say about what it would have been like for churches to take seriously what Paul is writing. In such a gathering, a slave could be an elder or a pastor over their master. And clothing among men and women could subvert and reinscribe social demarcations of power, class, and worth. So the implication is people would intentionally dress down when they came to church and not dress up to demonstrate humility and that we're all equal. Last night, somebody asked me, what does it really mean that, that the way of peace can, can disrupt the status quo? And I thought about, you know, what if I just wore old jeans and a hoodie today when I preached? And I thought, yeah, if I did that, there would be some people who would be kind of offended by that and they wouldn't be able to hear what I'm saying because this came too late in the, in, the, in the sermon. But what if I did that? What if you did that? What if we said, and just like all the ways that our culture celebrates and honors power, prestige, and privilege, we're going to intentionally demonstrate the opposite because we're all the same in Christ. In such gatherings, the poor or slaves would enter feeling welcome as their appearance lacked the usual markings that revealed their rank and social hierarchy. Indeed, in such a place, a slave could become a bishop and a paterfamilias, the, the highest ranking person in a household, would wash a slave's feet. What do you think? Would a group of people gather together like that and they were so humble and so mutually submissive with each other, do you think it would be easier to see the truth, goodness, and beauty of Jesus? This is what happens when people are so compelled by the love of Jesus that they want to live his way instead of our way. And I know it doesn't come naturally, and that's okay. It comes supernaturally as we trust Jesus and follow Jesus and rely on the Spirit of God who is in us, working this out in us. This is what happens. This is what happens when people are not happy to simply regurgitate what they believe, but they want to show off the gospel with how they live. This is why we remember we teach what we know, but we produce who we are. What are we reproducing? What do we want to reproduce? When people gather together and follow the way of Jesus, it creates a new culture. It creates a culture of people who live unimpressed with power, privilege, prestige, and wealth. And it's not like those things are wrong or bad. If you have privilege and prestige and wealth, awesome. That's not wrong. But following the way of Jesus means that we live in such a way that we are unimpressed with those things. We don't trust in those things. 
We trust in him. And we show that by following his way, by embracing a life of peace and quiet and godliness and holiness, humility and submission. I want to close with this thought. To the extent that we refuse to play the game of status, privilege, and prestige, we will be curious and compelling ambassadors of Jesus.